Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. I want to remind you that uh, we, uh, elders, you need to be here at the church this evening at 525. Uh, our evening service begins at 6, and we will continue this series on family with uh, consideration of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 20, which is uh, uh, addressed directly to the children. So I hope, parents, that you will do your best to be, with, to be here with us and with your children with you as we look together into God's Word at, at that particular verse from uh, Paul's epistle to the uh, Colossians. Uh, next Lord's Day morning, we will finish up this series by looking at Colossians 3.21 that is, dressed, that is addressed directly to, to fathers. Let me read for you this morning, if I might, verses 18 and 19. Of Colossians, the third chapter, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, if you would, just look back at Ephesians chapter 5. We've talked about how these two epistles appear to have been written at, at the same time, uh, probably delivered by the same messenger, probably meant to be read together, one right after the other so that the one epistle informs the other. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask that as we now give attention uh, in your holy word to the scripture that you have set before us this day, we pray, Father, that we would handle properly your word of truth, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a runner on first, and there's less than two outs, and your third base coach signals you to bunt. His signal is simple, it's clear, straightforward, it's hard to miss, hard to get confused. So the questions are, do you trust your coach? Are you willing to sacrifice Willing to sacrifice yourself? Or are you more focused on are you more focused on winning than you are on individual statistics? And of course, can you bunt? Requires some innate ability. And it also requires that you've practiced, 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 that you've failed more times than you can remember, and that you've finally begun to hone the skill needed 
to advance the runner from first to second. Paul's words to husbands in Colossians 3 and verse 19, they are simple, they're clear, they're straightforward, they're hard to miss. But they require trust, they require a willingness to sacrifice, and they require that we be zealously concerned for the temporal and eternal welfare of our homes. And and when we fail as husbands, as we will more times than we care to remember, they require that we are ready to admit that and we are ready to ask for forgiveness and we are ready to start anew. And all of that will be true because these words are simple. These words are clear. There's nothing confusing about what Paul writes here. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. That's about as simple and clear as you can possibly get. All of that will be true for the godly man because he knows that what Paul writes in Colossians 3.19 is the inspired word of God because the Holy Spirit has illuminated for him its, the, the meaning and the significance of this passage because God is at work within him so that he both wills and is eager to do God's good pleasure because he is burning with a holy zeal to do what is glorifying and honoring to him who is his Savior and his Lord. Remember, Paul, when he writes these words, when we read these words, these words are not addressed to a general audience. These words are not just for anybody, anywhere, at any time. These words are written to believers. Paul writes to those, we're told back in Colossians 1.19, he writes to the people at Colossae so that they would be what? They would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, that they would be blessed with spiritual understanding and wisdom. Paul writes in Colossians 1, verses 10 through 12, he is writing to instruct them on how to live a life worthy of the Lord, how to please Him in every way, how to bear fruit in every good work, how to grow in the knowledge of God, how to be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that they might have great endurance and patience and how they might give joyful thanks unto the Lord. Keep all that in mind. And now look again at Colossians 3.19. Colossians 3.19, Paul is writing to believers. He is writing to those whom Jesus, he tells us earlier in the, the epistle, whom Jesus has rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. He is writing to those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and whose sins have been forgiven. So, The first thing I want to say to you this morning is I hope and pray that what Paul writes here, he is writing to you. I hope and pray he's talking to you. I hope and pray Jesus is your Savior and Lord. Not only for your sake, but for the sake of your family and for the sake of your community. And for the sake of your world. I hope he's your Savior and Lord because if he is, then I again will insist upon the fact that what Paul writes, it is simple, it is clear, it is straightforward, 
it is plain, it is hard to miss. Now, please hear this. This is very important. This is why these words are for believers. Unlike the athlete in our opening illustration, I got bad news for you. You don't have the innate ability to do what Paul commands in Colossians 3.19. Not in the manner that Paul commands it. Not in the way that Paul is talking about. You don't have any innate ability to do those things. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. The good news, what you have is even better. (laughs) Because what you have is a supernatural ability to do as God instructs because he is at work within you. If you're his child, he is at work within you so that you will both will and do God's good pleasure. And by God's grace and through the enabling power of his indwelling Holy Spirit, you can love your wife and not treat her harshly. Now, last Sunday evening, go back to the Ephesians passage, if you will, for just a moment. Last Sunday evening, we considered the wife's God-given duty to submit to her husband in the Lord. This morning, we want to consider the husband's God-given responsibility of headship. Headship. Now, now where did I get that word from? I mean, Paul doesn't mention headship in Colossians 3.19. Well, I get that word from Ephesians 5.23. Remember, like we said at the beginning here, Ephesians and Colossians, it seems almost, it almost seems beyond dispute that Ephesians and Colossians were written at the same time, delivered by the same messenger, and they were meant to be read one right after the other. One informs the other. And in Ephesians 5.23, Paul teaches that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. The husband's God-given, now listen to me, the husband's God-given responsibility is to serve as the head of his wife and by extension the head of his family and the way he fulfills that God-given responsibility of headship is by loving his wife and not treating her harshly. So the woman's duty is submission to her husband, and the husband's responsibility is to exercise headship by loving his wife and not treating her harshly. Now remember, remember, this is so important. Remember, biblically, biblically, submission does not suggest inferiority, and headship does not imply superiority. Nowhere taught in Scripture. Those are ideas we have forced upon the Scripture. It's not taught in the Scripture. Men and women stand on an equal footing before God. No ifs, ands, buts, or maybes. But God gives to them differing roles to play. And this, this idea that we all have differing roles to play in the unfolding of God's eternal purposes in this world... That's the way it works throughout all of creation. Just think about it. Members of a church are to submit to the leadership of of the congregation. Citizens of a state are to submit to those who govern them. Even more to the point, Jesus submitted to his parents and God the Son submits to God the Father. 
Now, clearly, we're not talking about superiority and inferiority. Church members are not inferior to church officers. Citizens are not inferior to those who make the laws. Jesus was not inferior to his parents. And God the Son is not inferior to God the Father. But church members are to submit to those who rule their congregation. Citizens are to submit to those who govern them. Jesus submitted to his parents. And God the Son submitted to the will of God the Father. And likewise, since the time of the creation, God calls upon women to submit and give to husbands the responsibility and and God calls upon women to submit and gives to husbands the responsibility of headship. It has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. It has to do with God-given roles. What Paul teaches in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, now hear this. What Paul teaches in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 does not fit with the thinking of our day. Well, that shouldn't surprise us because it doesn't fit with the thinking of Paul's day either. And I tried to demonstrate that to you last Sunday evening at great length, and I can't repeat all of that right now. But the issue, what has that got to do with anything? The issue is not whether Colossians 3 verses 18 through 21 fits with our thinking or fits with the thinking of the first century. The issue is whether we believe it's the word of God, whether we believe we understand what it teaches, and whether we're willing to do what it it instructs us to do. Those are the issues. Those are the questions. Loving one's wife and refusing to deal with her harshly is the husband's God-given responsibility as the head of his home. Now, I've got to say a further word here. I hope it's by way of explanation and not by way of confusion, but sometimes when you get into these things, sometimes you feel like what you say is confuses the issue more than clarifies it. So if I do that for you this morning, I ask your forgiveness up front. But this is such a profound issue in our culture today that I just feel like I have to comment upon this. The idea of headship, which Paul sets forth in Ephesians 5, and was clearly meant to inform what he says, what he writes in Colossians chapter 3. The idea of male headship is so disturbing to some in our day that they they have now come to the place where they insist upon the idea that the biblical concept The biblical concept of headship has nothing to do with the exercise of authority, but instead it simply teaches that the husband is the source of loving concern and care for his wife. Headship, source, by saying the husband is the head of the home, God is saying the husband is the source of that care and concern that is so supposed to be shown to the other members of his household. Of course, what's tricky here is, well, of course that's true. But is that what this word means? Well, I mean, Friday afternoon, March 10th, our last full day in Uganda, we're supposed to take an excursion, God willing, to view the headwaters of the Nile. We will go to see the head of the Nile. What do we mean by that? We mean its source. The waters that are considered the source from which that mighty river begins its northward trek to the Mediterranean. Well, that's what people are arguing. They are arguing that the concept of headship 
in Ephesians chapter 5, speaks of the husband as being the source of the woman. After all, it's argued, look at the illustration that Paul uses. Isn't Christ the head of the church? That is, isn't Christ the source of the church? Isn't Christ the fountain of grace from which the church flows forth? Well, of course he is. Christ is the head of the church. He certainly is the source of the church. He certainly is the one who brings the church into existence by his grace and by his mercy and by his love. But is that all the scripture means when the scripture says that Christ is the head of his church? Do we not understand that it also means that Christ has authority in reference to that church? Is man the source from which woman came forth? Well, that's clearly what's taught in Genesis chapter 2. Woman was taken from man. But doesn't Paul also teach us, as we saw last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that while woman came from man, what else does Paul say? Man comes from woman. And Scripture clearly teaches that while God the Son is to submit to God the Father. And while God the Father is the head of God the Son, Scripture clearly teaches that the Father and the Son are the same in substance, equal in power and glory, and that they are co-eternal without beginning or end. You don't have the Father, and suddenly out of the Father flows the Son. It's not what it means when the Father, when it says that God the Father is head over God the Son. It does mean that God the Son submits to God the Father, but it doesn't mean that God the Son didn't exist, didn't exist, and all of a sudden, boom, now he exists. He flowed out of the Father, and here he is. It's clearly not what that scripture means. Dr. Wayne Grudem of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School just listen to the statistic, has examined 2,336 usages of kaphale, the Greek word translated into English as head, where we get this idea of headship. The 2,336 times that word is used in Scripture, and according to his research, I have not looked at the 2,336 times this word is used in Scripture, but according to his research, and he is a reliable scholar, according to his research, when this word is used, the one de designated as head is always in a position of authority. Authority. And it gets all over us, doesn't it? The husband has authority. Authority over his wife, authority over his family? You betcha. Okay, husband, if you just sat up a little bit straighter, now listen to this. Not the authority. Not authority for the sake of authority. Not for the sake of ordering people about, not authority for the sake of offering to, uh, of just ordering people to do this and to do this, but to do that, but 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 authority for for the sake of offering direction and providing protection 
for those whom God has made you responsible. A headship, authority. This is dangerous stuff. Why? Because every man here, just like me, is a son of Adam. And you have the capacity and you take, just like I do, everything that God teaches and you twist and you distort it to your own advantage. So you have to hear what the Word of God says. Do you have authority over your home? Absolutely. Do you understand what that means? I'm still learning. And so I have a sense, so are you. Kent Hughes writes in one of his books about marriage, God's word in the hands of a religious fool can do immense harm. And we are such fools. God's word in the hands of a religious fool can do harm, can do immense harm. I've seen couch potatoes who order their wives and children around like the Grand Sultan of Morocco. I'm not sure I've ever seen the Grand Sultan of Morocco, but it sounds pretty good. I do understand the second illustration. Misogynist, you know what a misogynist is. Misogynist is someone who is accused of hating women. Misogynist with the domestic ethics of Jabba the Hutt who cow their wives around with Bible verses about submission. I know such idiots. I know such fools because I've been one. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. But God has not given to the husband absolute power. He has given him a responsibility. And that responsibility is to serve as the head of his home by loving his wife and never treating her harshly. And as Hughes writes, the fact that evil, distorted men have perverted God's word does not give us justification for throwing it out. All Christians are commanded by God to love one another. Jesus said this supernatural ability to love is what shows the world that we we are his disciples. And clearly, Scripture teaches that husbands are to love their wives in a special way. There is to be a physical and spiritual intimacy that exists between them, such uh, such as they will never experience with anyone else while they both live in this world. These two people are to become one flesh physically and spiritually. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul says that the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. Look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Because the church is his body. As Paul writes in Ephesians 5.28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and he cares for it. Just as Christ does the church, you are one flesh. Her body is your body. Your body is her body. Just as you feed and care for your body, so you are to care and feed for her body. You are to love her. You are to be concerned for her. You are to be eager to provide for her legitimate needs. Scripture says you should be willing to lay down your life on her behalf. Not only should you be willing to die for her, 
You should also be willing to live for her. You're responsible for her. Husband, you're responsible for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's responsible for herself. One day she will stand before God and she will be called to account. She will be called to account before Almighty God for what she has believed and how she has lived. But on that day, husband, you will stand before God and you will be called to account. Not only for your own life, but also for the lives of your wife and family. You, the people of this church, will one day stand before God and give an account for your life on that same day. I will have to give an account of my life, but not just my life. I will have to give an account for your life. Because as James teaches, we who teach will be judged more strictly. I will be held accountable for what I have taught you by word and deed. You will be be held accountable. For whether you have searched the scriptures to see if what I have taught is true. And then we will both be accountable for how we have responded to the good news that the king has come and the victory has been won. Husbands, now hear the word of God. You are to love your wife and not treat her harshly. What does treating her harshly look look like? But it looks like selfishness. It may on occasion, God forbid, but it does, doesn't it? It may on occasion become physical or or mental abuse, but, but long before such horrors begin, sin harshly rears its ugly head in an attempt to to dominate the other person for our own pleasure and comfort or for the sinful satisfaction of knowing that that you're bigger and that you're stronger and that you can you can talk louder and that you can talk faster and, and by gum you're the husband and therefore the final word is yours. You know about that? What does harshness sound like? It sounds demeaning. It sounds unkind. It sounds, it sounds cruel. It reflects a lack of concern for your wife's ideas or feelings. It, it demonstrates an egotistical determination to win all arguments and to do what you want to do no matter what she might think or say or need. Husbands, do not treat your wives harshly. Love them. It's a wonderful word here. The word used most often in the New Testament for love, most of you know, is agape. It's an interesting word. It's usage in the New Testament. I don't know whether you fully appreciate this or not. I've told you this before, but sometimes these are... You need to hear these things many times. Its usage in the New Testament is somewhat unique. I mean, it seems to be, it seems to be a word chosen by the writers of the New Testament so they could fill it with meaning and, and challenge the, the cultural understanding of this thing we call love. Donald Blesch in his book, God the Almighty, compares the biblical concept of agape 
with the first century idea of eros, which, would, which was the word most often used in the culture of the first century to, to describe a husband's love for his wife. So you got this word eros, most commonly used in the culture of that day, and this word agape that appears in the New Testament scripture, which is somewhat unique to the New Testament scriptures. Compare the two. Blesch writes, eros is a love that desires to possess and enjoy that which is good and beautiful. Agape is the willingness to serve another for their sake. Not simply because they're good or beautiful or can provide you with pleasure or enjoyment. Remember, agape is the way God chose to love you. (laughs) Remember that. Same word, husband, that's being used to describe how you are to love your wife is the word that is used to describe how God chose to love you. And I'm looking around this room and God didn't choose to love you guys because you were beautiful. Eros is an ascending love that, that looks from earth to heaven to take, to take hold of that which is, is wonderful. Agape is a, is a descending love that reaches down from heaven to earth. Eros is the love of that which has great value. Agape is the love of that which is the least worthy. Eros is that which finds something to be valuable. Agape is that which creates value. Eros is is the desire to be near those who will bless and adorn our lives. Agape is the desire to bestow grace upon another. Agape describes the love of Christ for his bride, the church. And Paul teaches in Ephesians 5 that Christ gave himself up for her so that she would be without stain, wrinkle, or blemish, so that she would be holy and clean and radiant. He feeds and he cares for her as his own body because that is what she is. The church is the body of Christ. And likewise, the wife's body belongs to her husband and the husband's body belongs to his wife and they are one flesh and God calls upon the husband to care and provide for his wife as he would care and provide for his own body. But the scripture doesn't end there. In fact, God calls upon the husband to love his wife with a love that supersedes the love that he has for himself. He is to love her selflessly. He is to be focused upon her temporal and her her eternal well-being as well as the, the temporal and eternal well-being of those who are members of his household. He is to provide for her. He is to provide for her and for his family materially. The scripture says to fail to do that is to sin greatly. He is to provide for her and for his family spiritually. He is to share with them the word of truth. He is to pray with them and for them. He is to provide for them a spiritual example. In all that he does and in all that he says. 
And when he fails, and when he fails, and when he fails more times than he cares to remember, and when he fails, and when he fails repeatedly, He is to provide for his wife and family an example of what it means to confess one's failings and to repent of particular sins, particularly, so that even in his failures, he provides for them a spiritual example of how a man or a woman who loves God are serious about their desire to want to serve and glorify their Savior, so much so that when they fail, their heart breaks, and they can find no rest, and they can find no peace until they have made confession unto the Lord and unto the one whom they have offended here on this earth and have sought forgiveness. The husband is to desire above all else to be the means by which God blesses his wife and family for their temporal well-being and eternal happiness. In closing, look at Genesis 18:19. Genesis chapter 18 verse 19. How important is all this? (laughs) We have no idea. We have no idea how important all this is. Genesis 18, verse 19, God said about Abraham, I've chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Why? So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. What had God promised Abraham? Yeah, 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 I know. God had promised Abraham to bless Abraham and his family wonderfully. I know, I know. What else did God promise Abraham? God promised Abraham through you, Abraham, and through your descendants, I will bless all the nations of the earth. How important is this? Through Abraham, God would bless his wife and his family so that they in turn might be the ones through whom God would bless the nations. By loving your wife and not being harsh with her, you can turn this world right side up. Brian Chappell writes in his book, Each for the Other, exemplary love in our homes can change our world. Living as a Christian family in the midst of a godless society has a transforming power of unparalleled spiritual magnitude. Christian historians report that Christianity swept the ancient world, not so much because of the arguments of theologians, but because of the infectious love evident in 
Christian families. Love your wife. Don't be harsh with her. That's simple. That's clear. That's straightforward. That's it's hard to miss. And I got good news for you. God is at work within you. You can will and you can do his good purposes, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Not in your own strength, but in his omnipotent strength. And it is by the example. It is by the exercise of these simple commands. Love your wife and don't treat her harshly. It's by the exercise of those simple commands that you can profoundly impact your wife and family for the cause of Christ so that together you might be used by the Lord to turn this world right side up. Let's pray.